just so glad to be here with each one of you today, worshiping. Uh, we're going to just continue in our worship now as we come to look at God's Word. Uh, we're going to look at a passage today, talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So, if you have a Bible, a uh, Bible app, whatever it is, if you could turn to our passage today. For once again, in Luke chapter 1, looking at this same angelic announcement that we looked at last week, beginning at verse 26. So, if you have found that, and if you're able and willing, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Luke writes this, In the sixth month, this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. And here's what we're going to focus today. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, who has, has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant, or the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's God's word. You may be seated. We pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this next part of the angelic announcement today. Spirit of God, would you come now, open our hearts, our minds, our ears to your words. God, we believe that the same Spirit who inspired this Word to be written is here present with us today. And I ask you to speak powerfully through this Word. Transform our hearts, O oh God. Accomplish the purpose for which you have sent out this Word. Uh, pray that that would be accomplished in each one of us here, uh, online, wherever it is we're hearing this today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Well, <clears throat> when he was found floating in the Mediterranean Ocean by an Italian fishing boat one night, he was unresponsive and near death. And upon being hauled into the boat, he was bandaged and revived. What quickly became clear was that this man now had complete amnesia, like to the point where he couldn't even remember his own name. Fortunately, there were some clues. So the, the clues that he had over time to help him dis discover who, who he was and what he was were this set of incredible uh, skills and abilities that he had, which kind of led him down this path of self-discovery so that over time he could discover the fullness of who he was. If you haven't figured it out already, this is uh, uh, the basic origin story to one of Robert Ludlum's best known and loved series, which went on to become a series of successful films, 
based around a character named Jason Bourne. Uh, Jason Bourne, super soldier, who uh, was part of this top-secret government training program, Treadstone, uh, who essentially kind of wakes up one day, uh, comes to himself, kind of goes rogue, and then spends the, the rest of the books or the films trying to just fight to discover who he is and, and what it was that happened to him. And I bring it up as we continue in this teaching series entitled Behold, looking at these various angelic announcements about Jesus' birth recorded for us in Luke's Gospel because, whereas last week we focused on Jesus' humanity, that Jesus was fully man and why he needed to be fully man, this week we're focusing on Jesus' divinity, that he was and is fully God. Which, as I also said last week, that's, that's the part of the aspect of Jesus' identity, his divinity, that people often have the most trouble reconciling with. I mean, you ask the average person today, who, who is Jesus? What, what do you know about Jesus? Most people have no problem whatsoever identifying him as a human, first century moral teacher, that's great, that's fine. Uh, where people tend to have a problem is when you want to go on and describe Jesus as also being God. That, that's the part where, where most people will respond either with a polite smile or, or just flat out telling you you're crazy or you're wrong. Um, that's the part that people struggle with most. My, my point, though, in bringing up the Jason Bourne plot, aside from being like awesome action films, is that even for those of us who do acknowledge Jesus' divinity along with his humanity, many people still struggle to understand the fullness of what that means, that Jesus was fully God, how that worked. Seeing many times Jesus' divinity as an aspect of his identity that, kind of just like Jason Bourne, that Jesus came to understand over time and not who he was from the beginning. We're going to dig more deeply into what that means and what that's all about as we go, but the reality, just as we saw last week with Jesus' humanity, is the same for his divinity. Namely, if Jesus is not also fully God, if Jesus is not also divine, then nothing of what Jesus came to accomplish was actually accomplished. His humanity and his divinity, both needed in order to accomplish what it was Jesus came to accomplish. And in order to help you see why that is, as well as to come to see some of the beautiful significance of Jesus' divinity. I want to look at basically the flip side of those three points we looked at last week, but just kind of with a different focus, adjust it a little bit. So this week I want to show you the reality of Jesus' divinity, and then we're going to talk about the eternality of Jesus' divinity, and then finally the purpose of Jesus' divinity. So those three things, the reality eternality and the purpose of Jesus' divinity. So, if you close your Bibles, Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again to that passage? Uh, looking uh, at Luke's Gospel, this week again focusing on just verses 34 and 35 in particular. Follow along with me as we continue to examine these incredible angelic announcements uh, about the Christmas story and seeking to understand all that they revealed about Jesus to those who first received them, as well as all that they still mean to us and revealed to us today. Okay, so let's look first of all at the reality of Jesus' divinity. The reality of Jesus' divinity. So again, we're going to focus in particular on verse 34 and 35. Look with me there. Uh, we're going to just see what these verses in particular reveal about Jesus' divinity. 
And if you remember the context, because we, we read the whole kind of story and angelic announcement, Mary has been visited by this angel from heaven, Gabriel. He says, you're going to conceive in your womb, you're going to bear a son, call his name Jesus. This is everything we looked at last week that related to Jesus' humanity. But if you look at how Mary responds to this information in verse 34, look, she rightly asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? A little Greek is actually translated, how will this be since I do not know a man? By which she means no sexually, not like she doesn't know any men. Uh, how's this going to work out? Basically is the question she's asking. Which I think is a really important aspect, really important part of this story for two reasons. First of all, because it gives us Mary's first-hand testimony that Jesus was not conceived naturally. Okay? Either through Joseph or any other man, she says, I've never been with a man before, never been with a man sexually. Which, sure, we could, we could say, well, she's lying. She's making that up. She had, maybe. But certainly the Bible doesn't give us any indication that that's what's happening, or that that's the character of Mary, that that's the sort of person she is. Secondly, I think this is an important uh, aspect of understanding this story because it actually adds a great deal of credibility to it, I think. Why? Well, because Mary responds to the idea of a virgin birth the same way that you or I would today. Yep. The exact same way. Now, we've already talked about this with angelic announcements, that these were not, despite like what we often uh, think of first century people, angelic announcements were not common everyday things that happened. Uh, that everyone was just like, oh, another angel, great. Uh, that didn't happen often. They were, they were weird. They were scary things. What Luke is saying is the exact same thing is true of virgin births. Okay? These were not things that people just expected or thought of. And so, even if, yeah, people in Jesus' day, they didn't know everything we know about human biology that we know today, they, they still knew where babies do and don't come from. Yeah. Okay? They, they knew that much, right? That, that's why instead of just... Mary's saying, sure, no problem. Sounds great. She, she responds to this angelic announcement that she's going to have a baby with. How? And, and her fiancé, Joseph, he's ready to walk when he hears that Mary's going to have a baby because he's like, that's not me. So, virgin births, not, not common things. They respond just like we would. But as you look at verse 35 now, look there with me. The angel Gabriel responds to Mary's question by basically saying, well, like this. This is how it's going to work out. He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Which tells us a lot of things, actually. But first and foremost, what it tells us is that although Jesus' birth was undoubtedly by human means, that is, Mary gave birth to Jesus, a human baby, his conception did not come about through natural means. That, that, that's what that shows us first and foremost. So that's how it's going to happen. And no, before you even go there in your mind, this is not describing any kind of sexual encounter between God and Mary. Just, just know that there's nothing in the text that's actually suggesting anything like that. Now, there's two kind of Greek verbs used in here. The first one, epikomai, which we have translated as come upon you, is actually the same verb. Jesus uses in Acts 1.8 when he's telling the disciples, hey, wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has, has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. So it's an idea, it's a word that means kind of to arrive forcefully. In some cases even attack. But it's not meaning anything 
sexual. Secondly, then the other verb, episkiazin, uh, which we have translated as overshadow. This is the same verb used in Exodus chapter 40, describing the tabernacle construction. It had been completed, and God overshadows it. He overshadows the tabernacle, infusing it with His presence and power. And I love the way James Edwards kind of draws these two scenes together. He says this, quote, In the tabernacle, God chose to localize His presence within a particular time and space. Now He does so in a person. But along with showing us that Jesus' conception itself was divine and not natural, what the angelic announcement also shows us is that there are specific and unique results that come about as a result of Jesus' divine conception. Note there in the second half of verse 35, after describing Jesus' divine conception, the angel says, therefore, or that is as a direct result of this divine action coming upon you, the child to be born to you will be called Holy and the Son of God. So describing a few things about Jesus, his, his morally perfect nature, his, his set-apartness uh, as the, the servant of God, as well as the fact that he shares in the divine nature of God itself and is of one substance with God. And as you read through the Gospel accounts, as I said last week, you just see evidence after evidence of Jesus' divine nature. I mean, he's, he's healing people, he's performing miracles, he's walking on water, raising people from the dead. And then, Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. Uh, one of the most uh, greatest and most compelling proofs of all that Jesus was the Son of God. And then beyond that, uh, along with what other people are saying about him, you have Jesus' own confession that he is himself divine, that, that he is the Son of God. For instance, uh, one of the uh, most kind of compelling places you see is in Jesus' testimony. Mark 14, he's in this mock trial before the religious rulers and the high priests. And finally, uh, the high priest has had enough of this back and forth. Uh, his guys can't seem to get their stories straight. He finally just asks Jesus directly, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, which was like a, a prophecy about the Messiah from Daniel 7. So everybody loses their minds. They tear in their robes because they know what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm God. Yeah. Yeah. But as I have been saying, despite the evidence throughout the Bible, the reality is Jesus' divine nature. It's the part of, of Jesus' identity most people struggle to accept. They just can't seem to go to this place. And so, you, you know, you ask people about this today, you just be like, well, well, you're describing Jesus and what the Bible says about him. Many people, I've heard many people say to me over the years, look, Jesus was a great man. No question. Uh, he, he, he had an amazing life. He did and said all kinds of amazing stuff. Why can't we just leave it at that? You know, like, let's, let's just try to follow his teaching the best we can, because uh, there's a lot of great stuff there. Let's just do that. Why do we need to go off into all this kind of religious nonsense, these superstitions and whatever about him being God? Let's just follow his, his great teaching. And the world will be a better place. We'll, we'll talk a bit more about where that statement, I think a statement like that really comes out of, at sort of a deep, corny level. But in response to that statement itself, I know of no better response than what C.S. Lewis writes in his masterful, short little book, Mere Christianity. And he says this, 
I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Amen. Amen. So that's the reality of Jesus' divinity. Whether we accept that or acknowledge that or not, that is the Bible's testimony, that is the testimony of, of history, that Jesus was truly and fully divine. The next thing I want to show you is the eternality of Jesus' divinity, or the eternal nature of his divinity. And I won't spend a great deal of time on this point, but I do think it's worth taking the time to establish again, especially for those of us who believe that Jesus was divine as well as fully human. Because, as I said when we began, even those who do accept that Jesus was fully God, there can be some misconceptions about what that means, which, while taking nothing away from Jesus, uh, absolutely take away from our understanding take away from our full appreciation of just who this baby was born 2,000 years ago and who he still is. And where that misconception I find about Jesus' divinity most often arises is with regards to his eternality. That is that Jesus is the eternally existing Son of God co-equal with the Father. This is where I think we kind of get off, uh, off, off track when we lose sight of that reality. So for some people, while still seeing Jesus as divine, they'd say, yes, Jesus is divine. They would say, they, they understand Jesus to be a divine creation of the Father, who came into being either at some point in heaven or in his incarnation. That's when Jesus what was God's creation, they would say. That is, it's the idea basically that Jesus had a beginning. And this is actually still the understanding of Jesus today by those who, for instance, are part of Jehovah's Witnesses those uh, nicely dressed people who come to your door sometimes, um, they, they believe this about Jesus, that he was God's creation. Yeah. But actually, this is a belief that originated all the way back in the 4th century, known as Arianism. Arianism, which wrongly understands passages like Psalm 2, for instance, which talks about the Son being begotten of the Father, and it believes that that's talking about the Son's creation, yeah. rather than describing his position of honor. Because yeah. you see, in 1st century culture, even still today, Middle Eastern culture, the firstborn son is the son with the position of power and honor. He's the one, all the inheritance comes to him. That's what they're trying to describe by Jesus as the son, not that he's a, a literal son of God like that. So that's, that's one kind of place we can get off when we lose sight of Jesus' eternality. The other place, I think, while seeing Jesus still as divine, is when people understand Jesus' divinity as either something that came about as, at his baptism, when the Holy Spirit descends on him, or, similar to Jason Bourne, something that Jesus came to understand over time. So that, as he's growing up and all this, he doesn't know that he's actually divine. He just has this sort of sense of divine calling on his life. He's got these amazing spiritual gifts. He's like, man, I can heal people. What does that mean? And, and all this sort of thing. And then over time, 
he comes to the place where he comes to his baptism, and then suddenly uh, the Holy Spirit descends on him, and now he's like, this is who I am, okay, I understand, now I can go and do my mission, or whatever I've been called to do. Uh, this, seems like a common theme, uh, is also a belief that originally developed in the 4th century, known as adoptionism. Adoptionism, which saw Jesus as a morally upright boy, who was set apart, he had God's divine call on him from birth, but did not become divine until his baptism. So when the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus, that's when he becomes divine. And maybe you hear that, and you just think, okay, um, so what? Uh, so what? That, first of all, that just sounds way above my pay grade. Uh, and secondly, if, if people are, if they're seeing Jesus as divine now, then does it really matter when, when he became divine? Like, what, what difference does it really make? They're still seeing, they're saying he's God, so who cares when he became God? And, and so, in response to that, I'd probably say, no, I, I suppose it doesn't really matter, unless, unless we want to take seriously the, the whole counsel of God, everything that the scriptures say yep. about who Jesus was. Yep. Yep. And to be clear, I, I don't mean by saying that at all, I don't want to imply that any of these ideas about Jesus' divinity came about from people because they weren't taking the Bible seriously. I think, on the contrary, that's a mischaracterization of people, particularly from the 3rd and 4th century. They're, they're, they're reading the scriptures, they're trying to understand as best they can, what does this mean, what's this saying about Jesus? And they're coming to some of these conclusions. So, uh, I think, let, let's not say they weren't taking the Bible seriously. In fact, you know what? Uh, I can confess, acknowledge this. In my Bible school training, that's something I, think about, I think it was my first year, I remember sitting in a class, we're learning about Jesus' baptism, and initially, I actually came to some of the same conclusion as the adoptionist. Yep. I was just like, look at this, Jesus, yeah, clearly he's a special baby, but he lives out just a regular human existence. That's why we don't read about anything about him for basically 30 years. And then, at his baptism, he's anointed as the Messiah, he's filled with the Spirit, he becomes divine, and now he's like, aha, now I've got the power to do whatever. I, I came to that same conclusion myself. The problem for me, and, and my guess is, for, for many who came to some of these wrong conclusions about Jesus as well, was that I wasn't considering the whole of what the scriptures had to say about Jesus. I was focusing on a specific text, a specific story, and then just kind of building out logical conclusions from that. But in response to this initial conclusion I had about Jesus becoming divine, what some of my professors helpfully shared with me were passages like the one we looked at just last week, John 1 talking about how Jesus, he was in the beginning, yeah. that he was with God, that he was God, he was the one through whom all things were made. Uh, Paul, later in Colossians, speaks of Jesus, Colossians 1, he says, uh, he is before all things, but you know what that means in the Greek? It means Jesus became before everything. Um, it's, not, it's not challenging, he, he, he was before everything, and he says that he has supremacy over all things. Or man, even just consider what Luke says in the very next chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 2, we see a 12-year-old Jesus who, they, they, they go to Jerusalem for, to celebrate the Passover, and unfortunately, with the crowd leaving, they end up leaving Jesus in Jerusalem. They lose Jesus for three days. I don't know how you explain that to God, hey, we, just, we lost your son for three days. But they find him, when they find him, he's there in the temple, this 12-year-old boy, reasoning and questioning the teachers of the law. They're amazed by him. 
when his parents are like, what are you doing? Where, where were you? He says to them, quote, where, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? It's a 12-year-old boy. So there doesn't seem to be any indication that Jesus was unaware of his divinity. He, he knew who he was right from the beginning. And the more you read, the more you, you come to see the reality of Jesus' divinity, there's no indication anywhere in the scriptures, either that he became divine, he, he was learning of his divinity, or that he is in any way inferior to the Father. In fact, Jesus even speaks of his own eternal pre-existence, John chapter 8. There the, the religious rulers are questioning his authority, questioning whether he truly is an Israelite, a, a son of Abraham at all. And uh, so Jesus says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the religious rulers are like, you're not even 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Confessing both his eternality as well as his equality with God as he takes on the divine name, I am, Yahweh for himself. So as I said earlier, no, no, our lack of seeing this and understanding this, it doesn't take anything away from Jesus. He is who he is whether we see him that way or not. But when we do see this, when we understand it and, and realize the fullness of who Jesus was and is, I think our own adoration as well as our worship of Jesus becomes all the greater when we see him as he truly is in all his fullness. Okay, so we looked at the reality of Jesus' divinity and then the eternal nature of his divinity that he always was fully God. Last thing I want to look at with you in closing is the purpose of Jesus' divinity. Why was Jesus divine? Why did he need to be divine? And the reality is that the purpose of Jesus' divinity actually has a direct impact on all those reasons we looked at last week of why Jesus had to be human. Which, if you don't remember or you weren't here, related specifically to Jesus' death. He had to be human so that he could die. It related to his experience of trials and temptations, and then it also related to his bodily resurrection. Jesus' divinity has direct impact on all those things as well. But before looking at how it impacts those things specifically, I want to just give you more of a big picture, overarching purpose of Jesus' divinity first. And the doorway into that understanding comes through the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus when he first kind of comes on the scene. If you remember this uh, from the beginning of the Gospel accounts, Jesus shows up to fulfill all righteousness and be baptized by John. John sees him, points at him, and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God. Doesn't sound like a very like interesting or, or awesome superhero name, but he's like the Lamb of God. Look, here he is. When until we understand the significance though of what John means by that, what he's referring to. Namely, he's referring to that seminal moment in Israel's history when they are freed from slavery in Egypt. If you don't know this story, you've never seen any of the films or just watched any of this stuff. God's people had been enslaved, hard-pressed for over 400 years in Egypt until at last God sends his servant Moses, he sends a series of plagues, and then at last, finally one night, sends the final plague. The, the angel of death comes through the land to kill the firstborn son in every household. But in order to protect his people Israel and, and deliver them from this plague of death so that it will pass over them, God gives them these instructions in Exodus 12. 
Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, one for each household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You shall keep it till the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they should take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of their houses in which they eat it, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both male and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where that language of Passover comes from. And what John is saying, when he points at Jesus, he's saying Jesus is that, in a far greater sense, Jesus is that lamb without blemish or spot, whose sacrifice will cover and, and bring ultimate freedom to all who take refuge under his shed blood. But you see, this now, this is the point where Jesus' divine identity, not just being born of a woman, but also being fully divine and being conceived of the Holy Spirit becomes essential. Because in order to be that spotless lamb, without blemish, Jesus has to be without sin. That is, yes, he has to be human so that he can die, but he can't be only human. Because what the Bible reveals is that all naturally born children, those the Bible often refers to as the children of Adam, have carried with them the curse of Adam. That is, none of us, in and of ourselves, are without spot or without blemish. The Apostle Paul says it this way, Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men and women, because all sin. But, but, here's, here's the good news, because Jesus is the divine Son of God, not naturally born, and therefore He is free of sin's curse. Therefore, then, His sacrifice on behalf of us as the truly spotless Lamb of God, is acceptable before God as the penalty for our sin. Apostle Peter says it this way later, 1 Peter chapter 1. Knowing, he says, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That is, he is eternal but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So that's the purpose right there. That's the purpose of Jesus' divinity. So that he can be that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is how that purpose now relates directly to all those purposes of Jesus' humanity. Because here, if, if Jesus dies on the cross, he's human, right? He dies on the cross, but he's not the spotless Lamb of God, then Jesus is our example. He's our example of sacrificial love, but he's not your atoning sacrifice, and you are still in your sins. If Jesus experiences all the trials and temptations of life, just as we do, but he gives in to temptation, then he can identify with all your struggles, absolutely, but he cannot help you overcome them in any way. It's exactly as the author of Hebrews later says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Yes, he was tempted just as you are, but without sin. So he can actually help you 
when you're tempted. Finally, if Jesus is only human and not divine, then he may have authority to lay down his life, as he says in John 10, 18. But he has no authority whatsoever to take it up again, as he also says in that passage. And therefore, has no authority to raise you up when your life comes to an end. So this is it. This, this is the reality, the eternality, and the purpose of Jesus' divinity. I hope, I hope you can see now why this is so important. Why Jesus has to be both. And how it relates to the purposes that we looked at about Jesus' humanity. He must be both fully human and fully man in order to accomplish the purpose for which he, sinned. he was sent. But as I said when we began, this, this part, this second part, it's the part we struggle with the most. It's the part people struggle to identify with and, and accept the most. And, and I know there's all kinds of reasons for that. There's all kinds of logical reasons, historical reasons, even theological reasons that people want to just say, I accept Jesus, he's a great moral teacher, just like Muhammad and Buddha, all those guys, he said some great stuff, good things to follow, but I can't accept that he was divine. But in the end, I, I think the primary reason people reject Jesus' divinity is not because of the logic of it, it's not because of the history of it or the theology of it. I think people ultimately reject Jesus' divinity because of the implications of it. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Because think about this, the reality is this, if Jesus is just one more great moral teacher among many in history, who said a lot of great stuff, good stuff to follow, then well, then I come to Jesus' teaching and I can sample what I like. I can pick the things I like. I can discard the things I don't like. Yeah. doesn't make a difference. But if Jesus is divine, if Jesus is the Holy Son of God, then not only do I need to listen to what Jesus says, I need to obey what he says. Yeah. He's, he's worthy of my entire life and my worship if he's God. So again, it's, uh, rather than logic or history or just the implausibility of it, I think the primary reason people reject the idea of Jesus' divinity is because, well, they want to be the God of their own lives. Yeah. They don't want anyone deciding for them what's right or wrong or, or well, I should do this or not. That, I, I want to decide that for me. And yet what we've seen over these last two weeks is, first of all, Jesus' profound humility taking on humanity in order to lay it down on our behalf, as well as the true divinity of Jesus, which enabled him both to be that spotless sacrifice, as well as to conquer death, and then offer us true hope of that for ourselves one day. So I wonder if, maybe today, and my prayer for each one of us today, is that maybe for the first time, or maybe for the 500th time, that in light of what we've seen here in God's inestimable gift in Jesus, that maybe today could be the day that you would at last relinquish the role of being the God of your tiny world and surrender your life and your will and your heart to the one through whom the whole universe was made. You can do that right at this moment. Just simply, just confess, God, I believe that you are who the Bible says you were, that you were truly God, and you were truly human, 
you came and died for me. And today I want to step off the, the throne of my life and make you the God of my life. I wonder if today could be that day for you. Because what we see here in this testimony about Jesus is that he's done everything. He's done all the work ahead of time. Ours is simply to receive this work of the one who was fully God and fully God.